Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Tony Hernandez, and you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Each week, we take a deep dive into the recesses of our archive to bring you the voices behind some of our more fascinating conversations. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the Donate button. That's immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you. I'm Tony Hernandez, and once again, this is the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Our guest this week is Carlos Carrasco, a Panamanian-born actor, producer, director, with 68 actor credits to his name. Carrasco's acting career includes television commercials, voiceovers, and movies. His film credits include the blockbuster hit Speed, opposite Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, Parker, starring Jason Statham, and The Fisher King, in which he worked with Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges. He most recently starred in Turnover on Amazon and Diablo Rojo, which was shot in his native Panama. Carrasco has also acted under the direction of John Frankenheimer for Burning Season on HBO and William Friedkin on the 200th episode of CSI Crime Scene Investigation. Carrasco also directs the Panamanian International Film Festival in LA, which was created to cast a spotlight on the emerging film industry in Panama and to create exchanges and networking opportunities with film industry here in the US. Despite an extensive and enviable body of work, Carrasco is still best known for one of his earliest performances in the 1993 Taylor Hackford cult classic, Blood In, Blood Out. The film, based on the true life experiences of poet Jimmy Santiago Baca, focuses on stepbrothers Paco and Cruz and their biracial cousin Miklu. It opens in 1972 as the three are members of an East LA gang known as the Batos Locos. And the story focuses on how a violent crime and the influence of narcotics alter their lives. Miklu, played by Damien Chapa, is incarcerated and sent to San Quentin. In this scene, the menacing Popeye, played by Carlos Carrasco, welcomes Miklu to the pen. Where the fuck you get that placa, little Popeye? Soy de pico de liso. Hey, Cinderella, go find yourself a fella. You're on the clock, bitch, and midnight is coming. You got the wrong man. Probiamas, güero. Miklo Verca. 
Soy Popeye. ¿Conoces a mi carnalito Chuey Saavedra? ¿El Chuy? ¿Chuy? Es mi carnal. Órale, vato. There's some battles you should meet. Most of these cons don't click. They're just filling space, doing time. It's the gangs that run this place. See a black dude with a comb over there? That's bona fide. He runs the BGA, Black Guerrilla Army. Don't take nothing from him, or you'll end up with that black power comb through your heart. Here's my conversation with the talented Carlos Carrasco. I am Carlos Enrique Carrasco Mandeville. You can't be Latino and not have four names, you know. And I'm from Panama. At, uh, at, at, at what age, Carlos, did you come to the U.S.? Came to the U.S. around age 20. Might have been 21, 2021. 20, Prior to coming, did you ever envision yourself leaving Panama for the U.S.? Well, what happened is that I got exposed to American culture down there because when I was growing up, um, the, the U.S. was a big presence there. The, the United States has been a presence in Panama, like really a presence since the California Gold Rush. A lot of people don't realize this, but the California Gold Rush happened through Panama because it was a lot easier then to steam down from the East Coast, go overland in Panama. Panama's only 38 miles wide and then steam up to San Francisco to go do the gold rush. So in that traffic, that was kind of like the first time that Americans really started to uh, establish a presence there. Uh, they built a railroad. Uh, they opened up an English language newspaper, which when I was a kid growing up still existed, the Star and Herald. Um, so I, I was exposed to North American culture from the time I was, you know, I could first remember. Uh, my first images of, of um, television, for example, because the U.S. by then had established military bases down there, uh, a civilian population in support of the canal, because the canal was a U.S. operation for many, many, many years until the Jimmy Carter Treaty. And um, so there was both military and civilian presence there. There was a lot of exposure to American culture. The, the first television in Panama was the Armed Forces Network. So I actually grew up watching um, Ozzy and Harriet <laughs> and Bonanza and uh, the Honeymooners and all that sort of thing in English um, coming off of the, um, the Armed Forces Network. And also being really exposed to, of course, the movies and everything. And I kind of had, it's interesting to me looking back on it now because I kind of developed this mythical image of what life in the U.S. was all about. Um, and when I was, I, I, I did high school in Panama. I went to a Catholic high school in Panama. And then I managed to con my parents into sending me to the junior college because the American enclave was such in the canal zone that they had, it, it was it was like a whole mini uh, small community from the Midwest, you know, uh, set in the middle of, of this Latin American country uh, with support systems. So they had their own school system, their own police, their own everything. And the school system in the canal zone went as far as junior high. There was um, a small junior college where you could do your first two years. And I persuaded my parents that I, I just had to go there because, um, 
I dreamt up this story that my, my ambition was to go into advertising and I wanted to study commercial art. And the only place that was available was at Canal Zone College. So uh, my dad sprung for it and I got to go to Canal Zone College and be a gringo. And, and it was great because uh, I got to wear Madras shirts and hang out with the surfers and cruise in cars and listen to the Beach Boys. And so, you know, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting time, too, because it was the late, it, the mid to late 60s when all of that other explosion was going on, you know, in music and the Beatles and all that sort of thing was going on. And I, I uh, felt like I was right in the middle of that. But <clears throat> I hadn't really thought about leaving. Um, and then I met one of those people that, you know, you have certain key people in your life that you, you stumble into. And I had done a little bit of, you know, amateur acting around town and so forth and so on. But, but, but there's nothing really organized in Panama at that time. Um, but in the Canal Zone, there was. They had their theater guild. And, and of course, all of the schools had theater departments and they did regular productions. And when I went to the college was the first time that I actually got to participate in really kind of organized theatrical productions from beginning to, to, to end. And I met a teacher there who turned out to be one of the most influencing people in my life. Um, his name was David Lohman, and he was a great guy. He was one of those most unforgettable characters you've met. And he really took a liking to me. He became like a surrogate parent, a mentor, a drinking buddy. Um, a tutor, my first real drama coach and director. And um, so we carried on like this for a couple of years, which is a junior college, so it ends. Uh, and I was having a great time because, you know, when I wasn't there doing theater, I lived in the theater department. When I wasn't there doing that, I was out with my newly found American buddies, you know, listening to rock and roll and doing all those other things that were going on at the time. And I remember one day uh, Dave called me into his office and he said, what are you, you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I says, are you going to like spend your rest of your life just hanging out on the beach here and, you know, ingesting substances with your friends and stuff? And I said, well, yeah, it's kind of cool. <laughs> and he said, you know, I think you have more going for you. I think you really should go to the States. And um, I said, well, good, but I have no idea how I would do that because we really don't. We really did not have a lot of money. I mean, we were like middle, middle class. But any thought of going off to college in the States and everything, it, it just really was non-existent. So a couple of weeks went by and then he called me back into his office again. He says, come here, we're going to do something. So then he had these forms in front of him and everything. He said, I'm filling out some of this stuff and I need you to go get your transcript, do this, that, because, you know, I have an application here. Let's submit it together. Let's work on it and everything. And so we did. He took care of everything. He sent this thing off and I was like, oh. and then I went back to having rock and roll and things on the beach. And a few months later, he called me up and he says, hi, guess what? You're going to the States. You have a scholarship. Because he had applied to a private college in the Midwest, Stevens College, because he had found out that they had a special program offering acting scholarships to promising students in their junior and senior years. The, uh, the, the other payoff about the Stevens College story is it is a private women's college, a sister school to Vassar. 
So Stevens College uh, had an enrollment of 2,000 young, nubile, attractive, and very wealthy young ladies, and eight men. And I got to be one of the eight. And David Lohman got me a scholarship to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. And that's how I came to the States. And that completely changed my life. I can see why you love the guy. I mean, if I were to find a guy to get me a scholarship to attend the school with 2,000 <laughs> women and eight guys, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'd love the guy too. I love the guy too. <clears throat> so what was your 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 reaction? I mean, it's not your typical, you know, welcome to the United States. You know, find yourself on a wonderful college campus surrounded by all these young beautiful women. I mean, most people have a little different welcome to the states kind of story. In what way was it different? In what way was it better? In what way was it worse than what you had imagined uh in Panama? Well, yeah, it wasn't all fun and roses. Although I will say that in the island of Stevens College itself, um, first of all, the scholarship was so... Basically, what the scholarship involved was that you became an indentured servant to the theater department. I mean, that was it, you know, because it was a very active department. It's actually a very good department. I still will do a shout out to Stevens because they... Um, they're very professionally oriented in the arts. You know, they feel that if you are there to study uh, theater, voice, uh, television, radio production and stuff, it's because you want to go and do that, not because you want to be an academic and, and talk and study and write about it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they are two completely different orientations. So their programs are really, really very intensive. And when you are in any of them, dance, they have a very good dance department as well. Um, not only do they perform and produce constantly, but they favor as faculty people out of the profession. So they bring in actual professionals that people who really do go off and sing opera, actors who really have worked on Broadway and in Hollywood and things like that. And so that's your faculty and that's who you're working with and working very intensely. So there was very little free time to roam around and get into trouble or into all those 2000 girls. <laughs> I mean, it was really mostly about work. However, having said that, I remember, because as I said, that was in the late 60s. And when I wasn't watching Ed Sullivan and the Beatles and uh, the, the, the Beach Boys and so forth and so on, the, we also did get the news down there and everything. And it was, you know, I don't have to tell you the height of the civil rights movement. All of that was going on. And I had been seeing the pictures, Life magazine and so forth, the, uh, the dogs being set on the demonstrators and things like that. And I really did have a moment, you know, leading up to the trip when I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? Where am I going? Because I'm go I, this school is in Missouri. And I, and I thought, do I really want to do this? You know, but the circumstances at home were such, I was going through, you know, the, the not getting along with the father thing and all that kind of stuff. Time to leave home. This was the alternative. And it's like, you know what, let's, let's bite down and go and do this thing. So I did fly to Missouri and, and go to Stevens. However, Stevens was a bubble. And it was a bubble inside of Missouri in the late 60s. 
and I did have some experiences there. I did start to learn about the difference between the Hollywood image and the reality. Um, because I've, I've, I've maintained for a long time that one of the greatest exports of this country is pop culture. It has a great effect on people. And it was so in my generation, and I, I think it still continues to be so, that the youth of the world aspires to be Americans and to consume the American pop culture and to live the American pop culture. But when I really finally arrived, because I was in uh, my first two years were in Missouri, I had some interesting experiences there that reveal like walking home late at night and having cars drive by and rude things being yelled out of the car windows that was like, oh, okay. Um, near confrontations in public places like bars, um, where suddenly somebody was being very friendly to you and then turn on a dime and tell you about what him and their buddies tend to do to people that look like you on weekends. You know, so there was a learning curve involved there too. I have one funny story about that. The theater department called me up one day and said, would you like to make some extra money? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, because I was broke. I had no money. And they said, okay, you could work props for us in the theater department, uh, but you're going to need a driver's license um, because you're going to have to drive a van around to antique stores and stuff and everything. So go down to uh, motor vehicles and apply for a driver's license, an American driver's license. So I go down there and I walk in and there's, it's Barney Fife is <laughs> sitting there with his half boots up on the desk and everything. And I, I tell you, it was Barney Fife. And he's like, yeah, what you want? <laughs> I'm like, and of course I was at the, at the height of my, my hippie phase and stuff like that. Believe it or not, I used to have hair then. And it was out to here because it was the Jimi Hendrix look and stuff like that. So Barney goes, he said, what you want? And I said, well, sir, I'm here to uh, apply for a driver's license, you know. And he said, oh, so you want a driver's license, do you? <laughs> like, well, yes. He says, what you want that for, boy? I'm like, well, because I, the job is in an offer. And he says, well, I don't know. You're going to have to fill out them phones. How come you don't got no driver's license? And I said, well, because um, I'm from Panama. So I've not lived here before. And, and you know, and, and then there was a pause and Barney goes, you a pa Panamonian? Not <laughs> 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 like, uh, oh, well, yes, I'm a foreign student over at the college. And so then, well, then, <laughs> and then suddenly the feet come off the table and the thing and here's the form and the whatever. And I thought, oh. Well, that's interesting, you know, because so I, I also learned that little bit of lesson that to play the foreign student card would get me a little bit farther along uh, in the U.S. then than to just let them make their assumptions about what I looked like. A little more respect. Yeah, a little more respect if you said you were a foreign student. Not much, I'm sure. No, 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 it was still a little bit, but you know, but I'm saying the feet came off the table. That's a big move. Yeah, that's that's progress, you know. So yeah, yeah. So there were lessons like that. I mean What what did you miss most 
from Panama during your early days here? Nothing. <laughs> no, because I got to tell you, um, I did go through, I did really buy into the whole like um, gringo thing. I just thought it was the most wonderful thing to, to be in the States, to be talking English all the time, to be playing you know, rock and roll records and, and to be dressing like that. And, and just, uh, I thought, this is great. Um, so it sounds like to a certain degree, you went through the acculturation process prior to leaving with your American buddies at, at, at the school in Panama. I had totally uh, drunk the Kool-Aid uh, while I was still in Panama. You know, that looks like, uh, I mean, and really, I, I, I have to tell you, developed the degree of sort of uh, disinterest in, in things Panamanian and whatever. I thought we dressed funny. Uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 my Catholic school, we had to wear these khaki pants with all these pleats and stuff. All the American kids had tight jeans on, you know, and Weegians. Hello. I mean, you know, the things you put your values on and everything. And, uh, oh, that music, that, you know, uh, clatter, clatter, clatter of, of because uh, that was uh, the days of uh, Ismael Rivera, you know, Cortijo y su combo and all that kind of stuff. And later for that. You know, I want to listen to Eric Clapton and stuff. So I really, I was totally like, I was in total rejection. Did there ever come a time years later? Oh, God, yes. Talk to me about that. Oh, yes. Because, you know, so I, I did my two years in, in, at Stevens and didn't give it a thought. Um, then I went to Illinois. Uh, um, because then the whole other thing about discovering that I was a foreign student and that made me different because then my, then my problem became, how do I stay in the States? Because I was on a student visa, you know, that got me, that got me to the States and my great love affair with, oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the States now, but how do I stay? And I quickly discovered that you needed to continue to be a student. So I made it my business and I thought, you know what? If it'll work once, maybe it'll work twice. So I, um, about, um, before my sophomore year, my, my, my junior year, I went to Stevens in my junior year. Before my junior year was over, I made it my business to go to the library and start looking up scholarships and financial aid and so forth and so on. And then I started to, it became my, my yearly ritual of doing the application, the application exercise and so forth and so on. So I actually am happy, just proud to say actually, that I managed six years of higher education in the States, all on scholarship. Because by the time I was through um, at Stevens, I had secured a graduate assistantship at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And I went there and did a master's. And before I had finished my master's, I had gotten myself into something called the University Resident Theater Association auditions, which are for resident theater companies at institutions of higher learning in the States. And I made it all, they, they do the local and the regional and the national, and then I made it all the way to the nationals. And I got, it's kind of like the NFL draft, because if you make it all the way to the end, then you go and you do your piece and you wait out in the hallway until they all put their heads together and they come back and they post on the boards and you look to see who drafted you. And I did, I got a, a fellowship, a graduate fellowship at Wayne State in Detroit. Uh, and so I did three years of a PhD program, which I never finished. So uh, I'm an ABD, all but the degree. 
But uh, I wasn't interested in the degree. I was interested in being part of this repertory company because it was also a very, very intense program. We're doing classical theater constantly, constantly. Another, another indentured servitude. But in, uh, apart from getting me an education, an advanced education in my chosen field, it also kept getting me student visas so that I could stay in the country. So the first six years that I was here, it was on the strength of, of continuing to secure um, financial support at educational institutions. And a big part of that was I'm a foreign student because back in that day, it was a big thing for universities to be able to say, look, we've got students from here and here and all that. So once I learned that, I was like, you know, that was the headline of my applications every year. It's like foreign student, you know, because there's a lot of, there were a lot of programs. I can't speak to what's going on today. But at the time, um, it was a very attractive thing to draw foreign students to your institutions. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Unlike Paul Hogan, uh, you had years of theater experience when you first got your first Hollywood gig. Oh, well, now we're going to get into more of the realities of living in the USA. Because, and also, I haven't forgotten about your thing about the Latino culture, because by the time I was about three years into the experiment of living in the USA and, and being an American and doing all that stuff, it started to get a little stale. And I also started to learn a little bit about, wait a minute, I'm different and I'm going to get treated different no matter how much I think I'm not or how many Madras shirts I wear or whatever. I'm going to get treated different because... I am somebody else, I'm somebody different. So what is that? So then I kind of started a reverse process of looking for my culture and what it was all about. And the first couple of stops I made in the States were in sort of relatively small towns in the Midwest. I mean, Stevens is tiny. Um, Champaign-Urbana is a little bit larger, you know, University of Illinois and so forth and so on, but still a relatively small town. By the time I hit Detroit, now that's a city and stuff. And, and when I was in Detroit was the first time that I was driving around in a neighborhood and I heard, Oye, pero mira, ven acá porque tú no me... I'm like... And the impact was quite profound. And I was like, oh, where am I? Let me pull over. What is this? Because Detroit, even back then, this was in the 70s already had a significantly large um, Latino population. And then I found myself sort of cruising into these neighborhoods and just sort of hanging around and everything. I started investigating in the curriculum and discovered that there was a whole, uh, in the literature department, there was a whole like study of, of uh, uh, because I was on a PhD program, I had to have uh, a major and two minors. So I found a minor in contemporary Latin American theater. I started to take classes in that, and I started to read the, the material that was being written then. And I even got involved with a, with a little theater. It was an ad hoc uh, theater the program that they had for foreign students 
to do theater in other languages, you know, and the, and the French kids would do some Moliere or whatever. And um, I got drafted because, oh, you are an actor. You can really help us out. So I did a, a Garcia Lorca play, you know, over in the, in the literature department in Spanish with other Spanish kids and stuff like that. And that was great. That was really terrific. And that felt really good. I started to reconnect and, and, and discover the joy of just speaking Spanish again. And it was kind of scary too, because then I, then I couldn't do it. <laughs> because I had been, uh, you know, mute in Spanish for like about three years in the Midwest, where there was no, there is now, but, uh, but back then, no, no, no. So then all of a sudden I'm around these people and they're like, ah, oh, mira que interesante, te gusta esto. Y yo dije, sí, porque, uh, uh, and I really had to think. And I'm like, oh, this is awful. I can't do this. I can't forget Spanish, you know. So I started uh, there and towards the end of graduate school to really try to reconnect. And, and just with the literature, I started reading Pedro Paramo and, Cien años de soledad in Spanish and all this sort of, you know, because I, because I really started to miss my culture and where I came from and looking for the music too and whatever. There was another Panamanian that I knew back then in Panama uh, who was just this scruffy kid like me and we kind of left at the same time. And then I started to reconnect and rediscover him. His name was Ruben Blades. And then I started listening to his stuff. And, um, and, and fortunately, um, after Detroit, I moved to New York and he was there and we kind of got together again and, you know, hung out a bit. And that was great. That was terrific. So by the time I got to New York, I really, I really wanted to know what, what did I, what did I leave out of my life? I mean, those Latino years that, that, you know, I was so busy being, and like I say, Part of it too was the discovery of like, oh, living in the U.S. is not really like a Hollywood movie. It's, mm -mm. And it's a universal experience. It happens to a lot of us. Uh, and sort of that reawakening, that reconnecting, it's, it's very comfortable. It's very reassuring, uh, particularly when you feel like the other mm -hmm. in so many settings. Mm -hmm. And I studied in the Midwest too. I went to school in Wisconsin. So I know what it's like in 1980 to be, you know, the other. And then when you're around, again, a group that knows the language, knows the culture, has the same sense of humor, similar taste in food. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's a great homecoming. It really is. Yeah. It really, yeah. really is. Yeah. And you were in New York for how long? Oh, I was in New York for, um, New York was the launching of my great uh, acting career. And um, as you do, you know, you go to New York to make it on theater. And um, I was in there 15 years. Yeah, it's quite a while. Um, what, what's your most memorable role from that era in New York? Well, a um, couple of things. Um, one, I wouldn't so much describe as a role as perhaps a succession of roles. Because in New York, the whole, well, it was interesting too, because when I, when I got to New York, it was at the very beginning of my acting career. And again, there was not in the entertainment industry, the consciousness of, um, of Latin culture, um, that there is today. 
There simply also were not, not the numbers. I mean, part of what we have going for us now is just simply the force of numbers because you, you must do something that there, there's so many of them. You know, it wasn't quite that way then. So, and me being Afro-Caribbean, whatever, Heinz 57, um, there was a tendency then to go like, oh, he's black. So my entry into the, um, this business was a little rocky for, for, for some for ethnic reasons and others reasons of my creation. Because as I said, I spent a lot of time uh, doing higher education, doing training, doing whatever. The last three years that I was in, in uh, university were fully dedicated to becoming a consummate classical actor. Because that last fellowship that I got was to be part of a resident repertory company at Wayne State that did the classics. And at the time, I was still pursuing that ideal that we were all taught that to be an actor, you must be, you know, you must be Laurence Olivier. That was still kind of, you know, you have to be able to do that and speak like that and, and have the clear diction and so forth. And so I really worked hard at all that. And I thought, oh my God, it's going to be great. When I arrive in New York, watch out. Because that was also the years when uh, Joseph Papp and the public theater was really in vogue, when Raul Julia was becoming a star, when Clifton Davis was, uh, you know, surging. They were doing things like Two Gentlemen of Verona in Central Park. And I thought, okay, here I come. Here comes Carlos Carrasco now. Watch out, because I got the classical training. And, and I quickly discovered that not only did they not know what I was, because I would go to an audition, and the first assumption was like, oh, this is an African-American guy. And so I would get that kind of copy and whatever. And I couldn't do it because I, I, I didn't know how, to, I didn't, it was not my culture. And I didn't know how to, actually I kind of can do it now. I mean, the thing, you know, and all that. But, but I, I really was clueless then. And um, so I would be in, 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 in African-American auditions and, and, and be horrible. Because they would just look at me like, what is he doing? What is he, does he think? Some, one person actually called, a cast director actually called my, my manager after an audition and said, why does he think he's white? You know, because, because I talk the way I talk and whatever. So, so that was very confusing. Um, public theater, forget about it. Cause, cause it was like, and I, it took me a while to realize that they were kind of going for an urban thing. And, and I literally, I had trained myself right out of work because I showed up with clear, perfect diction and I would go to auditions. And, and then you go to these auditions and because you're ethnic, they go like, okay, you're reading for the part of the mugger. And I'm like, um, you know, and now, now get mug the little old lady. And you're like, um, stop there. Give me all of your money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> next. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I, I can't get arrested. <laughs> you know, forsooth. <laughs> Hand over yon drugs. And I'm like, I'm like, what, what happened? <laughs> I was doing Shakespeare and now it's like, I just keep getting all this copy about, you know, kick the old lady and, and take her purse. So that was kind of rough. Um, but, you know, negotiating it one way or the other. And I, I did get work. Regional theater saved me. There was because that's when you get hired to go out of town and do stuff like Chekhov and stuff like uh, out in the provinces. So I was doing that. Um, and then the Latino thing kicked in again. 
because I was working on an industrial movie somewhere in Alabama, something for the army or something like that. And there was another Latino actor on it, Tony Diaz. And then it turned out that he was also from Panama. And so we became buddies, you know, because we were there for about a week or so. And, uh, and then he said, I want you to come see something that I'm doing in New York when we get back. I'm doing a theater piece. So it's like, fine, we exchange. So I go to see him at this place called the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater, which is still there. And it's still run by Miriam Colón. So I go to see my friend and, and I'm like, wow, this is fascinating because they were doing a, a, a modern Latin American play uh, from Argentina or something, but it was like absurd theater and what it was very clever. It was very engaging. I thought, I love this. This is fabulous stuff. And I went backstage and I met some of the people afterwards. And then a month or so later, my friend Tony calls me up and he goes, hey, they're having auditions for the next production. Why don't you come on down? And I did, and I, and I met the director, and I read, and I got cast in this play. Ironically enough, called I Took Panama, which was a Colombian play about the, the creation of the Panama Canal and Teddy Roosevelt. It's actually a satirical piece. It's an interesting piece of history done theatrically. And the deal about at the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater is that you must be bilingual to work there because they do, and to this day they do, the same play, six times a week, three in English, three in Spanish with the same cast. So you have to be able to learn all your part and then turn around and learn it all over again in the other language. And there's an interest, and it's also an interesting cultural experiment to do that because it's not the same play. Can't be. It's not. For one, I would think it's twice as long in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and, and fabulous, fascinating experiment. Because for me, again, it was a great reawakening experience. Because particularly after all those years in the Midwest and not really exercising the language and everything, I will say there's something really great. If you're trying to learn a foreign language, act in it. Try acting in it. It's really interesting, you know. And so we would do the play. And so, and suddenly I was in this group of people and they were all Latinos. I mean, and, 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 and because it was New York and it was a mixture, there was a, there was an Argentinian, a Chilean, un Cubano, un Mexicano, my friend from Panama. We were all like, it's, it was great. It was great. And, um, and so I got involved with this thing. So to your question about what was the most significant role, it was my, because I then went on to become an ongoing member of that company. So over the next remainder of the years that I lived in, 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 in New York, I must have done 20 projects with them, you know, on all sorts of different levels, you know. And, um, and that became very important to me because it came like, became like an artistic home. You know, and it was, it was great to always be able to go back there to, to work in the language, to do the thing. And, and, uh, it's called the Puerto Rican traveling theater because she actually started it that way of like a flatbed truck where she would throw a bunch of actors in the summer and drive around to the underprivileged areas of the city and bring theater to them. 
you know. And so she still continues that tradition. So I got to be in several of those tours. And that's an interesting way to do theater when you're somewhere in Carajo, in the South Bronx, you know, and the conga drums are playing and the beer is blowing and they're going, Carajo, están haciendo ustedes aquí? We're bringing you cultura, papi. You know, and you're like, I'll never do this again. I'll never do this again. And then the next summer they call you and go, you want to do this summer? So, all right. You know, so, so that was great. Great adventures there with, um, with Miriam and the, her Puerto Rican traveling theater. Um, <laughs> at, at what point did you find yourself uh, out in L.A.? Um, that was in, uh, fall of 89, you know, you know, I have a partner, lady, wife, you know, who works in the advertising profession and has- Did you guys meet in New York? Yes, we met in New York. We met in New York, uh, actually in theater, doing theater. Um, very briefly, I was asked to do a reading of a new play at some small theater company, and which I agreed to do. And I went, we did the reading and it was all very well and good. And then the man who ran the theater came up to me afterwards and said, listen, I have to go out of town for a couple of weeks and I have an ongoing acting class. Will you cover it for me? And I said, yeah, sure. So it meets on Monday night. So you just show up and my students will be here. So I show up the following Monday night and Rochelle Newman was there. Uh, because she had her own theater company and they rented space from that gentleman. And they had some sort of uh, ongoing relationship, whereas he trusted her enough to let her be the key master. And so she was there to open up and close. So I show up to run this class. Uh, this young woman is there with the keys to the place because she has to hang around to lock up afterwards and nobody showed up. <laughs> So we sat there and chatted and talked. And then after three hours, we locked up the place and left. I said, well, I'll come back next week because I had promised, I think, two or three weeks to cover for the guy. And so I kept going back on Monday nights and she kept showing up on Monday nights. And uh, the students, I guess they went, well, teacher's gone. So the heck with it. So uh, I, I can't even take it personally because they didn't even meet me. They just simply never showed up. And that's how we met. And then the last night we locked up <clears throat> and um, you would have to get her own version of the story. But my version of it is that she followed me. Stalked you. Stalked me all the way back <laughs> to my apartment and then never left. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Oh, cool. And you've been together now how long? Ah, uh, 26 years, something like that. Yeah. 26, 27. Uh, she will kill me. It's a three-week hiatus that I took to change your life. Yeah. 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 Be, uh, because it did change my life. Because, as I said, 
She was um, advertising. She worked in, in Latino advertising then. She is by now considered a pioneer because, again, that was back in the days of there's 8 million Latinos in the U.S. Oh, what are we going to do? You know, and, and Univision wasn't Univision yet. It was Sin and um, all of that stuff. And, uh, and I had started to, this was another thing that I discovered about being a Latino in the States was that I could get work because in my native language, because that was in the early days of um, Hispanic advertising and it was just starting to become a thing. And then one day somebody called me up and said, you know, you've got a good voice. Could you come and help with this recording? And I did and so forth. And next thing I knew, I had a voiceover career and um, started doing, <laughs> my first voiceover was doing, um, there were these two little Argentinian sisters they were like middle-aged and they were cute and they were little and they were Argentinian and they had a gig. <laughs> they were dubbing because that's how it kind of started was dubbing because the, the American uh, broadcast, because again, it was sin and all that kind of stuff. And they started dubbing American uh, shows to run on the, on the Spanish networks. And these two little hermanitas um, were, had the, the gig to dub the 700 Club. Pat Robertson's 700 Club. And they were looking, and they came to the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater. And, and then afterward, they hung around after the performance and they started going around and scouting and going, ¿A usted le interesaría trabajar un poquito con nosotros? Haciendo grabaciones, ¿sí? ¿Sí ¿Por qué no viene? And whatever. And so they dragged it because we were all bilingual. So we all ended up as the, the repertory company dubbing the 700 Club. And that was interesting because to your point about it's three times as long. And then I'll never forget one time I got, I had, they would assign you, you're doing this, you're doing that. One day they gave me Little Richard. Because somehow Little Richard was on Pat Rob because, you know, he was a reverend and stuff like that. And boy, I got to tell you, trying to trying to dub Little Richard, because he's like, oh, yeah, oh, my Lord, oh, yeah, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God, and you're trying to do that in Spanish? I'm telling you, go ahead, try and dub Little Richard in Spanish. <laughs> Talking about Jesus and stuff, I was like, that was interesting. You know, but it was great training because, you know, you're in a booth and you got headsets on it and you're trying to, you know, and, and match to picture and, and so forth and so on. And then, boy, talk about tongue exercises, tongue and teeth and then whatever. Yeah. So. It's a nightmare. Oh. <laughs> Little Richard was a nightmare. Little Richard was in Spanish. <laughs> Little Richard in Spanish. So, yeah, yeah. So that's it. But, but it was good because, you know, we got, we got to like figure out microphones and headphones and things like that with the little Argentinian ladies and then started doing, you know, commercials and voiceover. You know, I'm familiar, I'm familiar with your work. I had no idea you had done stuff in Spanish, you know, oh. in advertising. I'm saying I had, I had no, 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 no idea. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Can I use a brand name? Sure. I was the voice. Of, well, in, in New York. I, I, and this is kind of an interesting thing too, and I'm going to get into trouble, but in New York, I started to do, um, like I said, commercial stuff, you know, and, um, and it went well and then it went really well. And uh, in fact, when the option to move to LA came up, my big kind of like, oh, uh, was the fact that I, by then I had something like three accounts 
you know, I was the voice of Shell or Texaco or something. And uh, I don't know, I had like three really nice, regular, steady things going. I'm like, really? And I go to LA and do what? And it was interesting because in, in, um, as the voiceover thing, the Latino voiceover thing started to grow uh, in New York, they kept saying, well, we need neutral Spanish. That was the premium. You know, it has to be neutral because, you know, the different markets and so forth and so on. And I was booking a lot. Um, they were core. Voiceover is small always. You know, there's like a, a core group of people that get all the, all, do most of the gigs. When I moved to L.A., it dried up. Because then this thing started to happen that I would go out, I would go out, same thing. It's like we were looking for neutral Spanish, neutral Spanish. And I would go and do the same Spanish that I was, had been doing quite successfully in New York. And started to get like, caribeño. Ese, suena de la isla. Ese que no, no, porque eso no es neutro. Eso no es neutro. And then I started to listen to what neutro is in LA. And it's Mexican. You know, as much as the lady might protest that it doth not, but if you listen, tiene la cosita, el toquecito que la cosa, and and um, so suddenly I was marginado again because whatever. But in spite of that, I did manage to land one really good account in LA, which I held on to for twelve years. I was the voice of Jack in the Box, you know, the guy with the big head. So that was kind of nice, you know. That, that lasted a bit. And how did you go from that to film? I started doing film in, um, in New York. Um, it's different. The industry is different in New York and how you get out. In, in, in some ways, again, I can't speak for now, but back then it was a little bit easier to get into interviews and auditions and things like that in New York than out in L.A. Even back then, people said, no, in L.A., if you don't have an agent, forget about it. You're not getting it. In L.A., you can, in New York, you can hustle a little bit easier uh, on your own. And, and I was starting to get into things, and I started to do, like, little things here and there. Because I, I figured out how to mug the lady, finally, you know, and I had to kind of strip it down and learn how to talk like this, you know, and hey, que paso, and hey, hey. or no work. <laughs> so, um, and then because of my height and size and coloring and things like that, oh, he's a bad guy. So I started a long string of playing bad guys. Um, and then another kind of cool thing, well, I told you a Paul Hogan story earlier. And the reason I, the, the Paul Hogan thing in my life is because I got cast in L.A. Um, I'll tell you a Hollywood story. Um, because they always say it's, it's about size and this and that. It's not even about the talent. I was, I went to an audition uh, for something called Crocodile Dundee 2 in New York. That was another audition until I got a call back. And then I went a second time to Crocodile Dundee. And then the very nice people and everything. And it was okay, fine. Hey, I had a call back. Whoopee. Then I had a third call. That's when it starts to get like, oh, okay, where's this going? And so I, I read three times. Then I got a fourth call back. That's when you're like, okay, uh, all right. They need to start paying me for this. So I go to the fourth and there are only four of us there. And we're all completely different. And we're waiting for them to come and start reading and whatever. And instead they come out and they go, hi, boys. They're very nice people, these, all these Australians. And it's John Cornell, the producer, director, and Hogan, 
And they all come out and they say, hey, you want some food? You want some whatever? And then they go, we want you to meet Norma. She's the wardrobe designer and she's going to take your measurements. And we're like, oh, okay, this is not an audition at all. We're having a wardrobe session. And in show business, by the time you get to wardrobe, that means you got the gig. So there's four of us and we're just being measured and stuff like that, but we're still not being told what what happened and stuff. And I had been consistently reading for the part of the lead bad guy. So then I leave and I go to my agent and I go, I, I just got measured and stuff for this movie and everything. And my agent is there pulling out his ear and going, yeah, I know they're crazy. I don't know what to do with this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, well, they've called and they said they want you to be in the movie. And I said, fine. What part is he playing? Because I need that information to negotiate. And they said, we don't know. <laughs> and he said, how am I supposed to negotiate a deal like that? And I said, what do you mean they don't know? And they said, no. They said, literally, oh, we don't know, but we like him. So we want him to be in the movie. And I'm like, okay. And again, this is early on in my career. I said, well, is it uh, for how long? He said, it's like two months. And I said, oh, really? And he goes, and I said, where? And he said, in Australia. And he said, it's all first class. And I'm like, well, then what is the problem? <laughs> So I went to Australia and I had a wonderful time and I was in Crocodile Dundee too. And I hung out with Paul Hogan and all those Australian great people. And then later on, I found out that what had happened is that if you watch the movie, there's a bit where all these, we were all bad guy Colombians and we go to, to Australia to get him and to get his girlfriend and all. And we're chasing, it all ends up chasing through the outback and so forth. And he starts picking us off one by one. And it eventually gets to picking off the head bad guy and the, the 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 trick in the script is that he captures the head bad guy forces him to switch outfits with him and then pushes him out where he, where he, they know his men are waiting there with the guns and stuff and the bad guy runs out because he's dressed like hogan his own men shoot him but it came down to they needed an actor who matched hogan in size and i was too big so he said, but we like him. <laughs> we want him in the picture. So I got to go to Australia and run around with a rifle and do silly things and, and shoot at stuff. And, and had a wonderful time because it was the first time I'd really been on a movie for an extended amount of time, you know, and plus free trip to Australia, first class. I can't say enough about them. They were great, great people. They treated everybody the same way. You know, there was no star, none of that, no, no hierarchy. You know, and as they explained, they said, why would we do that? We were all convicts once, <laughs> you know, so it's like very nice. So you came with 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 the uh, the dream of acting and, and developing a theater and acting career. And you've done just that. I mean, you've been successful in in achieving a dream. If you could give advice to a uh, a young Latino pursuing his dream, just arriving now, uh, knowing now what, what, what you know, what, what advice would you give him? What would you say? I, to be true, to be true to himself and to his culture. Um, I think in my journey, that kind of going off on the side bends and things like that, which I had to do then, um, probably lost me some time. Um, 
it's very different now. I mean, I was very much involved in it's a, it's a little ironic for me now because I, when I watch the media now and I, I see all of the shows on a network and the films and everything like that, I see a lot of Latino faces and that, um, that makes me feel good. I'm proud about that. Uh, but there's a little bit of irony to it as well because I remember the bad old days um, when we, um, I'm not taking any extra special credit because it was going on on both coasts. When we marched and we protested and we held up signs, I remember picketing Broadway shows um, because they were doing Latino themed shows without a single Latino in, in the cast or they hadn't even bothered to cast. Um, and I know the same thing was going on on the West Coast with organizations like, you know, Ricardo Montalban's Nosotros, you know, who were doing the fight. I mentioned earlier the organization Ola, which is the Hispanic organization of Latin actors that I was involved with uh, for many years. Um, and we did, we, we, um, we made a fuss. Uh, and there are so many other Latino organizations that we could mention. I mean, the Alma Awards were on recently, the National Council of La Raza, so many people that have fought the good fight, uh, primarily to get the Latinos not only on camera and as part of the, of the culture that we're living in in this country today, uh, but also um, to be presented with dignity and with pride. That wasn't always the case. So... I don't want to say something like, well, it's easier now for the younger kids. But, but I mean, the door has been, a, well, in a way it is. There's no way around that, really. I mean, now they do write for them. Now we do have successful, because part of the, uh, part of the task was also, it's not just, in a way, actors are kind of the last thing that happens. So it's also very much important to get the people behind the scenes, you know, the producers, the writers, the directors. So, I mean, I think, I guess the, my advice would be to somebody going into the arts, a Latino going into the arts or into the industry of entertainment today. Um, I know that the acting is the first thing that, that is attractive because, oh, it's sexy and so forth and so on. But there are so many other occupations in the industry, you know, that are equally as rewarding and, you know, equally as productive and also just as powerful and in some cases maybe even more so towards you know advancing the culture and advancing la causa you know and put and continuing to pull us all up you know so i'd really advise people to i mean the dream the dream has many facets to it you know it's not just about being an actor it's also about being a writer it's also about being a producer a director you know a business executive these people have a great deal of power can make a lot of decisions that can have good impact um, you know, on the ones that are coming behind. Do you wish at times that you were coming up now when there are so many more opportunities? That way madness lies. What can you do? What can you do? I remember a few years ago, and again, this is not judging. It's about timing. I remember a few years ago seeing uh, an HBO special uh, for Mark Antony. Mark Antony being on HBO and he got his own special. And because I have a personal relationship with and grew up with Ruben Blades, I thought, ah, oh, you were 10 years too early. Because where's the Ruben Blades HBO special? You know, 
I, because I, man is major, major talent, poet, uh, you know, just so many things. Never got an HBO special. But I mean, I know he's not crying in his tea someplace because that's just what it is. It's life. It's, um, yeah, it's a different time. Everybody played their position. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all. Everybody played, played their position. As you look back, and you're way too young to be asked this question, but I guess you can be asked at any age. As you look back, what, what are you the proudest of? Um, leaving a mark, honestly. I mean, because in spite of everything else that we've talked about and in spite of all the obstacles and everything, I am proud of the fact that I did hang around, um, did not give up, continued to try, continued to practice my craft and my profession, and did achieve enough of a, a degree of success that um, I'm going to be around. I'm going to be around. 50 years from now, folks are going to turn on The Late Show and Speed is going to be on. I like that. I like that. And I was a good guy in Speed. Carlos Carrasco has certainly left an indelible mark on American pop culture. His contributions, as I see it, are to his craft, which he continues to hone decades after his introduction to the theater, and to today's artists of color, who owe him and his contemporaries a huge debt of gratitude for opening the doors of opportunity and laying the groundwork for careers which he could have only imagined. To learn more about his work with the Panamanian International Film Festival, please visit them online at piffla.com. That's Pifla, piffla.com. If you enjoy our podcast, we invite you to visit us at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and a five-star rating. The Immigrant Archive Project is edited and co-produced by Edie Gonzalez. Our director of photography is Daniel Godoy. For more stories, please visit us online at immigrantarchiveproject.org. I'm Tony Hernandez. Thank you for listening. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.